Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience, the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of The Call in the Apple Podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at ausbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ausbiz, Australia's only live streaming markets and business service. You are on the call for the next hour as we take a look at uh, 10 stocks that you suggest and uh, I put them to an expert panel and uh, today we've got a beauty on on the panel as well. Uh, great combination. Always love talking to these two blokes. Uh, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial and Andrew Page from Strawman. G'day guys, how are you? Good Koshi, how are you? Oh good. Uh, Michael, have you put your feet up after a hectic reporting season? <laughs> Taking a bit of a breath or are you still digesting it all? Oh, I think it takes weeks to properly digest it all, but it's been um, it's certainly a busy period. Um, by and large, it seemed to be a pretty good reporting season. Um, certainly exceeded expectations on the headline numbers. Some of the revisions from analysts were lower than what we were probably hoping for, but I think we're in a pretty decent position for a strong finish to the year, fingers crossed, in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, Paige, what, what was the reaction of the, of the straw man crew? Yeah, look, it's always a mixed bag with um, with earnings results, but I think, as Michael said, on balance, it was it was pretty good, and um, it's it's a particularly busy time on strawman. So we only sort of get a couple times throughout the year to sort of dive into what what our businesses are saying. So yeah, it's a bit like drinking from a fire hose. Um, so we've we've been busy and we've still got a lot of work to do, but it's been good. Yeah. All right. Okay. And certainly shareholders have been hosed with special dividends and special buybacks. A lot of money going to come into the economy over the next month or so from them. Billions of dollars. That's what surprised me from some of the big corporates. Um, Hey, let's kick off with the stock of the day. And uh, I thought we'd uh, take a look at a biotech that uh, comes up often here on the call. It reported uh, yesterday. I think that's Mesoblast. Uh, out with its full year results, uh, losses widening from around 80 million to 100 million in the last financial year, also failing to provide uh, any uh, dividend um, or any guidance at all. Um, running a rule over the stock, uh, Jeffrey's uh, downgrading it to a hold from a buy after uh, those weak results. The broker sitting on the sidelines waiting for the outcome of the company's meeting with the FDA in regards to uh, use of its flagship COVID treatment. Price target getting a trim down from $1.90 to, uh, or to $1.90 from $2.55. Um, 
Andrew, what do you think of uh, Miso Blast and the result and what's been the feedback? It's not one that we cover in any great depth. And, and the reason being is that it's not really given us cause to. This is one of those companies that you, you put in the category of really hoping that it succeeds because it does potentially such great stuff. But it's been it's been on the market for a while and over its history, it's all it's really done is, is bleed cash. I mean, the share count has doubled over the last 10 years. The Remus Stem Cell, I think I'm pronouncing that right, product, it's one of these broad application, very promising therapies. So you can see why the market likes it. There's something there, but quantifying that, trying to work out the timing of that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So it's one of these businesses that for me, it feels a bit like a gunner business. It's always about to do this, you know? Um, uh, It's just not there yet. And, And again, I'm saying this from a perspective of someone who hasn't done the deep dive into it, but it just, as I say, at the level that sort of matters for investors in terms of what's happening in terms of the cash flows, there's just nothing there at this stage. It might come and hopefully it will come because that means they've got a really great product on their hands that's helping save and improve the lives of a lot of people but it's just not there yet so yeah. for, for me it's just hyper just too speculative yeah uh michael yeah look much the same um it's a well followed stock um it's been seems like it's been around for for years and years um with much the same story always about to play out um just looking at my notes from previous Ausbiz experiences or appearances sorry around this time last year um the company was coming into its decision time on that REM stem cell um, study that it was conducting. Um, and at that time, it was almost peak mesoblast. I think the share price might have been up around the $5 mark. But yep. soon after, they must have got some bad news. Uh, the share price took a bit of a hit or quite a, a big hit. And that's, I think, the, the story with mesoblast. It's very much a binary outcome type of stock. Um, should they get FDA approval? Should their clinical trials go to plan? The sky's the limit for this type of company, but on the downside, if it doesn't come off, you can lose money pretty quickly. Um, the most recent setback is I think they're going to have to undertake their clinical trials again for the REM stem cell um, product because in order to get emergency or to get approval to become an emergency therapy, that is potentially what they're going to have to do. And that's obviously got a lot of costs involved. Um, there's obviously the risk that they don't get approval once again, and that could send the share price back further Um, and to Andrew's point it is a serial fundraiser and the thing is it looks like it's going to have to raise funds again because if it's going to conduct these clinical trials or the or the um, the second round clinical trials for this REM stem cell then it's going to have to raise more money and that's going to cause further dilution so unless they can come up with some sort of agreement with some other drug company to fund it um, it's looking like they'll have to come back with their cap in their hand to shareholders for another raising. So yeah. no go for me. Yeah, it always seems to have a story, does it? And runs up and then peters out and another story comes. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. All right, let's get into uh, the stocks that our viewers want us to run a ruler over. And um, um, Andrew, Liz wants a view on Life360, which is uh, a family safety sort of digital platform that enables parents to communicate and keep track of their children. Quite interesting, it's based in San Francisco. It's about 26 million monthly users. Um, Its board is fascinating. I didn't realize Tony Hawk was on the board. You know, the world famous skateboarder and Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer. Um, Really interesting. 
Uh, revenue for the first half of the year uh, in US dollars, revenue up 27%. Cash burn about $6 million for the half, about $51 million in the bank. What do you think of Life360? Yeah, it's, it's always interesting when you have people like that on the board. I mean, they've, they're definitely very impressive people, but they've made their name in other areas. And, and you know, I, I, I do wonder what, what board experience that they do bring there. Um, but look, nevertheless, this is a fascinating business. It, it is listed here in the ASX, but they do most of their business in the US. So it's this family safe sort of app where it's only it's only your private group you can share private messages but the big thing is really this location sharing kind of stuff and you can put in safe places so it'll say hey so and so has just left here and should be home at, at this time uh, if there's an emergency you can tap a button so it's sort of it's one of those things when you first come across it i sort of look at it and think well can't i really do that through you know other other sort of free sort of platforms out there but they have got a niche, and it's one that seems to be gaining increasing traction. So you, I think you said 26 million monthly active users, which, which is what I saw on their site as well. But when I went to their recent results, it's already up to 32 million monthly active users. And that's been growing really well, up 28% in the last quarter alone. Um, the, the subscription revenue that they take out of the business. So out of that 36 million users, about 1 million users are on paid subscriptions. And that's been growing really well. In fact, they've increased recently up their full year guidance from, I think, 110 odd million in annual recurring revenue up to a, a lower base of 120 uh, or so. So they've got tra they've got a, an interesting product. Uh, they've got traction. They seem to be pretty well uh, funded, definitely going heavy on the celebrity sort of angle to try and uh, promote the product. And, and it's all trading on about 10 times annual recurring revenues, which isn't necessarily a lot in this current market for a business that is growing exceptionally fast. So I think it looks interesting. I think Liz is, is right to sort of um, uh, to, to, to be interested in it. The hard part here, and I've only just sort of scratched the surface here, is really understanding that value proposition, how it compares to just traditional kind of uh, uh, platforms, but also others that might be tackling this niche. And I, I don't know anything on, on that front, but it does look interesting. The, th the thing to be aware of, of course, is that although there does appear to be a lot of positives here, if that if we don't see uh, any serious and sustained sales momentum, we will see even if it continues to grow, we will see a re-rate by the market, and therein lies the main risk at this stage. So uh, I'll put it as um, interesting and, and a hold at this stage. I just need to do more work, but uh, yep. it looks interesting. And you look at that share price increase, uh, Michael. It's had a, a pretty good year. When I had uh, when I had kids at home, I always thought, gee, if I could only microchip them. So I knew where they were from toddlers through to a 17-year-old. Um, wouldn't that be great? This is sort of, <laughs> that's a bit harsh, I suppose, but this is the new age version of it, isn't it? Keeping, keeping yeah, track of your kids. It's the stuff of nightmares if you're a teenager. I'm glad this wasn't around when, when I was at school or whatever, but um, they definitely seem to have hit a nerve. Um, I think yeah. the key thing is, although their monthly active user base is 32 million, Andrew touched upon it that only about one mil of that so far are actually paying subscribers. Um, but obviously they've got the engagement there and it gives them a big runway to growth if they can get a few more of those to actually fall onto the paying platform. Um, so all those key numbers look, look very, very good. The average revenue per paying customer has been increasing as well. 
Um, they're looking to broaden out their reach into the wearable devices and wearable products. So they'll be able, obviously be able to cross sell to their existing customers, customer base, some of those technologies. So it does look to tick a lot of boxes. And the good thing is it doesn't actually trade on too high a multiple, at least in this day and age, compared to many other tech type businesses. Um, so I think it's definitely one to keep an eye on. I don't own it, so it's very difficult if I don't own it to give it a buy. Um, but it's probably the closest thing to a buy that I can give it, um, despite the fact I don't hold it. Because you want to continue to see those numbers improving. Um, you want to continue to see it make a transition towards being cash flow positive um, and, and to making some good money. But it's definitely on the right path and, and I think it's worth a, a deeper okay. dive, uh, one that I haven't actually done just yet. So yeah, put, yeah, well picked out there by the viewer. Yeah, put you down as a whole, but on the watch list, if it ticks those extra couple of things. Interesting business. Liz, keep a watch on it. All right, uh, Michael Carley wants a view on Calix. Now, this is sort of a, a disruptor in the old style sort of furnace manufacturing type technology, Michael, isn't it? Um, they recently got a million dollar grant from the Australian government to, uh, to keep going on with it. They've signed um, uh, a venture with a UK based company. It sort of carbon captures that manufacturing process, does it? That's right. So it's basically got this technology, what they call the CVC, a CFC technology, which has applications across a number of different industries, um, from you know aquaculture to wastewater, um, to batteries, cop production uh, and protection, and things like that. But also, their key application, I think, at the moment, from reading about the business, is when cement dries, it emits a lot of excess heat. This particular technology, for instance, is able to capture that heat. And, can, and transfer it into energy. So it's definitely um, an ESG type business. It's very prominent in the UK, in, um, in Europe. I think at the moment it's getting something like eight to 10 mil worth of grants each year. Um, so it's definitely on the radar for a lot of these uh, emission conscious type investors and businesses. So this company as well is actually quite well liked across the market. I know Shore and Partners, for instance, have been big um, big backers of it for some time and they continue to like it um, and in an environment in Europe where they've got a carbon price and it's trading quite high at around I think 60 um, euros a ton these businesses become more and more interesting and more and more viable for many companies operating in that ge geographical jurisdiction so for mine it's another one I don't hold but looks very very interesting um, so it's definitely one to keep on the watch list. So just because of my lack of knowledge, my lack of research, it's a whole, but it could well fall over the line at one point down the track. Yep. Andrew? Yeah, so I echo a lot of that. Really interesting technology. Um, it, it feels as though it's got a, a very broad potential application as well. I think they operate across five different business lines, but there's other areas this technology can be applied in. Um, look, they've spent a fortune in developing this. It's $100 million, I think I read somewhere, that they've so far put into this. You've got 25 different uh, patent families across all of the technology. So really cutting edge, super exciting stuff. You know, one of those things when you try to start calculating that the potential total addressable market, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Um, the trouble is that, that um, and although sales are growing, I mean, $19 million in FY21 in their own sales, that excludes the various project, uh, project grants and R&D grants and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it, it's pretty decent, but, but it is on 30 times sales. 
So I always start to, on one hand, I don't want to overthink these kinds of very, very early stage high growth potential businesses too much on valuation. I've learned that lesson the hard way multiple times. But on the other hand, I mean, you just can't pay an infinite price just for a sexy story. At some stage, this has to result in cash flow for shareholders. And it just it just sort of seems up at these levels here, you don't have that that favorable asymmetry. Either they absolutely just knock it out of the park and beat already pretty optimistic expectations and you'll do well, or they kind of match or fall short of it, in which case the result's gonna be something pretty different. Um, so yeah, for my for my mind, it's just it's it's just a bit too hot right now. Um, I could well regret that when they triple their their revenue in the next year or so. But that's that's one of the things that you just it's just very very hard to to spot with these early stage businesses. Um, so it's a it's a hold for me, but definitely one to keep on the watch list. Okay, all right, a hold on Coex for both of you. Um, Andrew uh, Lakshan wants a view on points bet and poses the question. Could this stock be the next afterpay? <laughs> Gee, Lakshan, that's a big call, is that? Of course, PointsBet is the gaming business um, uh, to the end of uh, June. Um, um, almost, almost doubled turnover, uh, big increase in active clients. Uh, hasn't been listed that long, has it? And it's one of these gaming business, a bit like... Um, What's Michael Sullivan's one? Uh, we talked to Solo, I think, earlier on Ausbiz, Bluebet. Um, one of these gaming, uh, Australian listed gaming businesses trying to expand into the US where they're, um, they're deregulating the gaming business. So what do you think of PointsBet, Andrew? Yeah, there's a lot to like with PointsBet. Um, it actually ranks really well on Strawman. It's about 31 or so, and the, the, the current consensus price target's up, I think, around 1140 or something like that. So th our members definitely like it. Um, the big story here is they're doing very well in Australia, um, but the, the big opportunity is in the US. Um, and they've only got a very, very small uh, market share there but a very, very long runway to grow and, importantly, some really good traction. So they're in... I think um, they're operating in about seven different US states, so that, and they've had quite a bit of success there, and it's growing strongly, but that's only 15% of the, the total addressable market in, in that space. So um, it, it's, a, it's a very competitive space, but they've got a good product, they've got some really good agreements, they've got really good tractions, and things are growing very, very well. So I'm gonna back our members on this one, and I'm gonna say it is a buy. I should, should point out that I personally don't hold it, um, again, I just haven't I haven't done the deep dive research on it, but at a high level, it looks really interesting. You can see why why people like it. All of the metrics in the presentation are pretty much moving in the right right direction. Uh, they are still still making an earnings loss. Um, I think 156 million dollar loss in FY21. That was actually better than expected. But that's the other thing to sort of keep an eye on here that they do pivot to profitability and manage to scale well um, as they sort of try to capture all, all of these. Greenfield sites and states and the rest that does that does cost money, um, and so shareholders are, are probably not going to see the fruits of that of those efforts uh, in the near term. But geez, if they can lock away a decent a decent market share, then um, there's there's a lot of upside potential. Is it the next afterpay? Geez, that's a very high bar to beat. But even if it's half as good as afterpay, it's, it's probably <laughs> worth investing in. <laughs> yep, a big call. And Michael, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you know the. Uh, the home of capitalism, um, online betting um, has been severely restricted in the US, hasn't it? And now it's being deregulated. 
but you almost got to go state by state and points bet in a lot of the states they go into go with local partners don't they it might be a local casino or um or whatever yeah, so that's pretty much spot on. So I think recently they made their way into West Virginia, which was their seventh state in the US. But you've got to remember each state in the US is pretty much the size of Australia in terms of the population. So it's an enormous market that keeps opening up for them. Um, the goal, I think, by the end of FY22 or maybe even calendar year um, 2022 is to get into 18 different states in the US. So. They, they aren't the biggest in terms of market share, but they do have a sizable market share. Um, and for instance, on the recent um, Super Bowl, they were actually the largest in terms of the number of, of bets made through their portals. So it's an enormous opportunity for them. It's actually one that we've held for clients for some time and done very, very well off. It's obviously come back a long way from, from $17, but we still like it. In fact, this pullback gives clients the opportunity, in our view at least, to look at picking some up. Um, the, they've made an agreement with NBC Universal in the US as well, a five-year um, five term on that contract, which basically enables them to be promoted and marketed on NBC's channels. And NBC has the, the, has the Super Bowl, has a lot of the NFL and all that sort of stuff. So we think that it's a, a huge market and a huge market opportunity, and they've got a toehold or maybe even a bit more than that, which they can look to exploit and build out in the years to come. So we think that they're in a pretty good position uh, and we've got to buy on it for that reason. Okay. All right, the guys like uh, points back there. Um, um, Michael Shahana wants a view on Tyro payment. Shahana says, just want the expert's view. Share prices dropped 20% due to the current lockdowns. Is this a share you want to buy now for a reopening trade? Of course, Tyro payments... Um, basically provides a lot of uh, businesses with their FPOS machines, a lot of small businesses. Um, what do you think of uh, Tyro? Well, their recent set of numbers wasn't actually too bad at all. Uh, they had lower churn rates. Um, they had a record month in terms of new merchants taking on their products. They've also further developed their relationship with Bendigo Bank. But this is... In many ways, it's kind of old technology now, although it is a technology business. They did exploit um, the, the lacklustre nature of the, the big four banks in operating in this area. And originally they went out and they signed up a lot of small to medium sized businesses onto their merchants. A lot of it was in um, pubs and clubs and, and, and that sort of stuff. A lot of hospitality venues, which have obviously been hit extremely hard due to COVID. Um, so you'd have to think, yes, they would see some benefit upon a reopening once that does translate. But a lot of that is quite known and probably embedded into the share price. Um, the problem for them is that the, the as they move away from small to medium-sized businesses, which they've managed to build a pretty big market share in, they've got to start targeting larger operations, which were typically serviced by the big four banks. But the problem with those larger organisations, the merchant fees tend to be to our 20 to 30 basis points lower than small to medium sized businesses, which does raise questions about the product mix there. And there's also a, an increasing amount of competition in that space now that a lot of the low hanging fruit has been signed up. So on one hand, there is a lot to like about the company, but on the other hand, there's a few question marks about the long-term future for the company. And for that reason, I'll be giving it a miss and turning my attention elsewhere. Yeah. Um I suppose that churn rate people, were they the ones that, that had an outage over Christmas as well for a lot of their small business customers? So 
the fact their churn rate was pretty low would have been quite good as a result of that, would they? Well, yeah, you're spot on. They actually had that that issue, um, which was resolved, I think, fairly quickly. But yeah, to see that they've managed to not lose too many customers off the back of that's definitely a good sign. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, it did hit their net promoter score. I noticed in their in their results presentation. But yeah, overall, overall churn seems pretty decent. I guess at the end of the day, it's just a. I can imagine for the the mindset for a lot of small business owners, it's just a hassle. There's there's usually a million fires to put out, and if something is generally working, even if it's not quite as good or as cheap as it might otherwise be, it it does it does tend to get pushed back to the to the back burner, which is great. But it also shows you that the um, the real fight here is is in securing new clients, um, and it's the competition angle that that I struggle with here. I think. You have to be pretty sanguine about competition as an investor because pretty much all companies have competition. So you can't always point to someone else and go, oh, therefore, they're not going to be successful. But it's trying to sort of put odds on who's going to be the eventual uh, successor as well. Michael's dead right that they have really seized an opportunity from the banks just having pretty crappy uh, overpriced offerings and, and I'm sure pretty ordinary customer support. So they've come in much more agile, much more attractive in their pricing. They've just gobbled up a bunch of the market. Um Going forward, though, when you're competing with the likes of Square and other huge players there that might be prepared to accept lower margins and just try and operate on larger scales, that's the thing that I, I find more difficult. Now, it might be okay if this was there wasn't much in the price. But this is eight times sales. So um, I, I've got to wonder a little bit about that. Um, you know, hats off to them. They've they've forty seven percent increase in uh, transaction volume since the IPO a couple of years ago. They've doubled the number of merchants in that same period of time. So it's CAGED compound annual growth rate about twenty five percent in the last five years. So it's it's doing incredibly well. And they reckon of the total market, they've got three point eight percent. So maybe it's one of those things where it's actually there's at this early stage. Uh, as people are trying to lock in the market. Yeah, maybe they don't have, uh, ever have the, the, the lion's share of the market, but even if they can grow to a 10% share of the market at maturity, that's still a tripling of the business uh, from this standpoint. Um, it's just hard to put odds on for me. And as I say, with, with, the, with the price level where it is at the moment, we know that the next, couple, the next the short term at least is going to be pretty rough with a lot of, the, a lot of their customers having to suffer through lockdown uh, at this point in time as well. It's, so it's all just a bit, very interesting business, very credit where it's due, but that competition angle just, and the pricing angle just puts me off a little bit. So it's a pass for me. Yeah, it's uh, what you bring up is interesting is the competition in this area because Square is sort of a new age, like Epos machine, is it? That's coming through for small business. And this, yeah. um, I've, I've always swung between an afterpay hater and afterpay lover. Uh, but I interviewed Anthony Eisen last week here on Ausbiz and I started to go back towards the lover tribe um, because he was sort of explain. I'd always thought single product, no moat. But then basically they're using this single product to build a trust and a relationship with a new generation of um a banking client and become a new age bank. And he was explaining the attraction of Square is that it gives them access to massive number of merchants overseas to offer afterpay. And then I kept thinking, but then you will offer Square access to an enormous number of merchants here in Australia. And that plays into your Tyro sort of analysis that you know, afterpay is going to help 
one of their new age competitors come in and maybe steal some of their market and the merchants. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and you know what, the big, the big four banks might actually, I mean, this, maybe this is less likely, but they might actually get their act together as well. So actually, yeah. wait a second, we didn't really care at first when these guys were nipping around our heels, but now it's actually becoming more of a threat. Let's get more serious. So it, it, it's just, as I say, you don't want to freak out every time you notice competition, but it is just hard to yeah. sort of understand the exact dynamics in play and what gives these guys a particular yeah. edge. And, and just how much that sector is changing at the moment with technology. Yeah. All right, Warren wants to view uh, uh, Michael on um, Goodman Group, the, uh, the big property developer and holder and fund manager, um, declaring operating profits up 15% for its full year results. Warren wants to know what your, uh, what your analysis of Goodman is, buy, hold or sell. Yeah, so Goodman is a company that we have held for clients for some time. Um, the only regret is we don't hold it more widely across portfolios because it always does seem quite expensive. And it's probably been the preeminent property company on the ASX over the last 10 years or so. Um, and they came up with a, a wonderful business model whereby they would find a tenant such as Amazon. Uh, they would understand that they want their warehouse distribution centre to be within five kilometres of the CBD. And then they would then go and find a purchaser of that asset who wanted the, the yield, such as a superannuation fund, and basically match those two parties together, build the asset, and then take on the management of that asset once it was built. So an incredible business. Um, their funds under management have increased substantially um, in, in recent times. Their performance fees have gone through the roof. And the fact is, as a property fund manager, the assets aren't as hot um, as they are in equity markets, whereby they tend to be more sticky. People can't just pull money out of the fund that easily when it's a, a property like this. So it's hard to see those same conditions being replicated going forward in the years to, in the years to come, because many others in the property space have clued into this business model and are trying to become more property fund managers as opposed to property developers. So there's more competition now over those industrial type assets, which is pushing up the prices, making it harder for those assets to derive value over the long term. But they will continue to, to tick away and, and continue to do what they do. Uh, they managed to build some very good relationships, not only um, in Australia, but around the world. Um, so we continue to like it, but do bear in mind that we do think the, the great returns that we've been seeing compound year on year are likely to be behind us. Um, at least in going forward in the next five years. We expect it to do quite well, but not as well as it's done. So it's a buy from us, um, but a caveat on the expectations. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, it's one of, the, one of those couple of stocks in, in my little self-managed super fund that I just keep it as a core uh, and it just keeps ticking over and you don't need to worry about it. Sort of best of breed in that property sector. Well, congratulations, because the share price is up about fivefold in the last ten years or so. So it's yeah. been a it's been a great little performer. A little bit of a wrinkle there, of course, though they they got nearly wiped out in the um, in the GFC. They had sort of yep. debt related issues. There's a lot of property, so it's sort of going from a lower base there. But as Michael said, I mean they've got a really great model here, and they have absolutely been delivering. So underpinning that rise has been a very solid increase in the distribution payout. It's up, up about fifty percent over the last ten years. Um, they've had really good results this year. They're calling, they actually offered a forecast for the next full year or the current full year, which is up about 10% or so. 
So that's great. But it does, as Michael was indicating there, it does sort of suggest that although it still remains a very attractive business, those growth expectations for the next, you know, five, 10 years might not be as, as great as they were uh, previously. And you are paying a, a P of about 30 or a yield of about 1.3%. Michael, I don't think that the distributions are franked either. So that's just a 1.3% gross yield. Um, so, uh, you know, with, with it, it, that, having said that, it's not, it's not the highest yield, but, you know, it's a low rate environment and they're probably able to grow that dividend at 10% a year. If I was you, Koshi, I probably wouldn't be making any moves to get rid of it whatsoever. No. But as a, as, a, <laughs> as a new investor, I, I don't know. And again, it's, 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 it's hard to be too critical here. It's something, again, if you're just wanting something pretty reliable for the bottom draw for the next 10 years, you could do a lot worse than this. Um, is it a is it a screaming bargain at this point in, in time? No. So for that reason, I'll, I'll go for a hold. Okay. All right. Let's just recap the uh, the first five stocks here on the call for the uh, first half hour. Miso Blaster, no. Uh, Life three sixty, a hold from both of the guys. Certainly got it on their watch list. Quite interested in it. Calix, a hold from both. Points bet, a yes from both. Uh, Tyro payments, a no. Uh, Goodman, a yes from Michael and a hold from Andrew. Uh, here on the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year, thanks to our partner NAB Trade. Any stocks like PointsBet that gets two thumbs up goes into the portfolio. Um, let's see how it has been going for the week up one and a quarter percent, for the month up almost four percent since the 1st of July this financial year up five and a quarter percent and since its inception uh, on the 1st of July 2020 up just over 42 percent. Some of the stocks recently added Harvey Norman, Camplify, ReadyTech Holdings, Unity Group and Beacon Lighting. Some of the stocks removed Appen, Flight Centre and Vanguard's Global Value Equity ETF. If you want to take a look at all the stocks in the calls portfolio, head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. And don't forget your chance uh, to tell uh, your friends about us and enter our prize pool draw for a chance to win one of six prizes worth $10,000, including a $5,000 self-wealth trading account. That's closing at the end of the week. Uh, no better time to tell your friends about us and what we do to enter. Use the referral code in your COB newsletter to share with your networks. And if you haven't subscribed to the Ausbiz platform, uh, you can go to ausbiz.co forward slash join and read all the terms and conditions. And uh, the competition for the, uh, the 10 grand worth of prizes finishes this Sunday. All right, let's get into uh, the second half of the call. And Andrew, Josh wants a view on Setire. Uh, Josh says, is this a good retail stock for a small portfolio? Uh, only recently listed. It's basically an online shopping portal, isn't it, for luxury goods in the 12 months to June. Uh, they've increased, they've tripled uh, basically sales. Um, they've uh, tripled the number of orders. And financial review sort of was a bit critical of it uh, over the last six months, um, sort of uh, questioning, if you like, their relationship with some of their suppliers and wholesalers, but traffic's up and revenue's up. Uh, only recently listed, as I say. What do you think of Setai? Yeah, look. When you look at the um, when you look at all the metrics, they're all moving in the right direction. And for a retailer that's relatively young, it's just absolutely exploding. Um, 
So this is specialty retail. This is high-end retail. So this is the kind of thing, I think last time we discussed it, I had a quick look and it was $1,500 for a pair of, you know, um, very, very swish Ugg boots kind of thing. So that's the kind of uh, product that you're looking at there. They actually claim an average uh, basket size of $723. So this isn't like spending 20 bucks for Amazon Prime or so. Um, very, very high marked uh, goods. 35% of their uh, their sales actually come from China there. Um, they've they've got a pretty interesting model too where they don't hold any inventory. They basically just use, their tech is basically used to handle the logistics and the fulfillment between the actual product manufacturers and the end customer, which is a pretty cool model um, if they can continue that to work. I'm not, I'm not deeply across what the AFR criticisms were, um, but I mean, it still comes back to one of these things. This is this is always the challenge, right? Is that by the time a company is is demonstrably sort of recording um, really impressive results, it's just in the price. And so much so these days, any sort of hint of kind of growth and the market just piles in. So we are on ten times sales for an online retailer. Um, uh, yes, that does come down very quickly if they continue to triple their sales. But that's that's the thing that you need to watch. Have they got the market opportunity? Yes. They certainly seem to have that. But one thing you've, and I've learned this the hard way over the years, retail is such a cutthroat industry. There are so many global retailers out there. Some are absolutely massive. Um, they've, a lot of them increasingly these days have got opportunities to enter new markets without much fuss as well. So it's 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 when you see a mature retailer that you, you see how uh, unimpressive the financials tend to be, the unit economics tend to be for most of them. So what you've got to really uh, try and understand, but this is the hard part with something like this, is you've got to understand sort of how far off is maturity? What does the business look like at that stage? Will they get there? What's the timing of all of that kind of stuff like? Um, so look, I'm, 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 based on what I know, I'd actually err on the side of saying that this actually looks reasonable given the momentum that they've got. They've, they've clearly seemed to have, Found a, found a niche that, that resonates, but it is it is a very tricky thing to try and to try and value. So I'll, I'll keep it as a hold at this point in time, but um, one to watch. Mm. Michael? Um, yeah, look, it's obviously been a, a wonderful success story and all those key numbers look amazing. Um, 120 odd thousand active customers um, is big in Australia, I suppose, but on the global scale, it's still very, very small. But as they scale and become larger, they're going to have to nut out a lot of these relationships. Um, I think the AFR was touching upon at the time that they had no direct relationships with brands. Um, so basically, the international brands had no say over pricing um, or the way it was presented, the range, etc. Um, over time, investors started to get concerns that those international brands, many of them which are very large, large household names, would start pushing back on that and maybe limit the access um, that Setai had to certain products. And obviously, if you move from a premium retailer to one that's only being able to present um, like factory outlet type offcuts or leftovers, yep. then you lose a bit of the gloss. So I think management sort of heard that. They're now trying to engage with management of some of these large fashion houses globally. Um, but that's all very early stage. So that could be a positive in that they get access to good quality stuff, but it might be a negative in that they now have to you know, charge premium prices. They can't discount and make themselves more competitive relative to the next shopping website. Because these days, anyone can really set up a shopping website or an e-commerce website online using Shopify, which is basically a back-end technology which you plug into your website and allows you to present 
different um, different clothes, different shoes and accessories through your website. And I'm not sure what Setai's backend technology is like. And um, they talk a lot about improving it. I'm not sure if they are even using Shopify, whether they've got their own in-house technology. Um, but it's a, a business that's got off to a wonderful start. But as it gets bigger and bigger, I think there's going to raise a lot more question that they have to answer. Um, so it's definitely one to keep an eye on. A good Australian success story in its infancy, um, delivering record growth rates. But I think um, it's one that you just have to be careful of because there's a bit going on behind the scenes here, I think. Okay. So what would you rate it? I'd rate it as a whole. It's very hard right. to jump in after a huge run-up like this and on these multiples because, sure. as Andrew was pointing out, a lot of the positivity has been well and truly embedded into the price. Yep. Okay. All right, Michael, Chris wants a view on Dr. Go Anywhere. He's saying it um, uh, looks like it has growth potential and the business is growing. I've got a small holding of this and I'm thinking of adding to it. It's a UK-based basically telehealth business, isn't it? Where they uh, um, almost, um, they work with doctors and GPs to give after after hours help or, or telehealth going through. Uh, underlying revenue of about you know, nine or $10 million in the first quarter of 2021. Um, uh, they offer the, the same service to um, insurance companies and um, healthcare companies as well. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, a great show today. There's a lot of sort of exciting emerging businesses um, that have been delivering some very good numbers across the border. And, and this one's really no different to that. I must admit, I haven't come across this one before, but it does seem like a, a very interesting business proposition. Um, they've got their numbers all moving in the right direction, as I touched upon. They've got a lot of people, um, like potential customers that are, are active on their website. Their biggest problem, I think, at the moment are supply side constraints. Um, so their ability to get GPs onto the platform to meet some of the demand out there. I think um, in the most recent report, just looking at it briefly before I came on the show, they did see a deterioration in margins, which is never really something you want to see from a business as it scales up. Um, and that might have caused a few concerns and the cause, a cause a drop in the share price. But again, another one that I don't know much about, but one I'm happy to keep on the watch list because it does seem to be a pretty interesting new age way of delivering patient care. And I think it does have some legs, but uh, I just got it as a, a hold and watch for now. Okay. Um, and Andrew, uh, you know, we've all got used to telehealth during lockdowns too, <laughs> have we? Not only, <laughs> not only consumers, uh, but also the medical profession. Um, as well yeah. in dealing with clients? I'd, there's no doubt about it. I mean, some things are hard to forecast and some things are pretty easy. And I, I would imagine that as a category, telehealth is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The question is, is whether these guys are going to play a major part in it and whether they're going to sort of have some attractive economics as they sort of deliver on, on that potential. But it looks really promising so far. Um, they've, they've, They've had a good increase in the number of uh, uh, consultations that have been on there, uh, which has been really good. The revenue tends to be growing really strongly as well. They had a little bit of a speed bump in the UK with so many doctors um, focusing on the vaccination rollout, which has been a bit of a distraction there. So I think it's reasonable to probably look look past that. And in the second quarter, we saw some really great uh, uh, pickup there. It is a still a loss-making business, so um, we do need to watch, as Michael said, that they are able to, to effectively scale well. I'll admit that I'm not too uh, au fait with 
the competitive landscape out there, what else is on there. I imagine that at a particular particular point in time within within a given market, that network effects start to become very, very dominant and that the, the eventual winner here will have something really, really special. If all the doctors are using a particular platform, well, that's all the, where all the patients are going to go and vice versa. Just it, It's one of those... It's one of those characteristics that whenever I spot network effects at play in a business, I definitely take notice because they are the strongest form of competitive advantage that that tends to be out there in my humble view. Um, And it looks potentially that they they may have it. Now, so all of that looks kind of interesting. And then I had a look at the price and again, I thought, oh, it's going to be another another thing that's on a million times sales or something. Um, But what I forgot to do was uh, convert from pounds back into Aussie dollars. And it's actually only on a, a price to sales of about three or so. So yeah, a little bit of a wobble with the UK vaccination program, but on a, stepping back a little bit, they seem to be delivering on their potential. The UK is obviously a very, very big market. Um, all the metrics seems to be moving in the right way and it doesn't seem too overpriced. So I haven't done my due diligence on this. This is like Michael, I've only come across this this morning, but I think it looks, I think it looks quite interesting. Um, so I can't give it a buy in good faith without having done the work, but, but I, would, I would certainly say uh, one to watch. Okay, do it as a hold and one to watch and the share price has pulled back a fair, fair bit as well. So might become interesting based on that. Um, oh, Michael, Rosie wants to be on Samfire Resources. Um, Rosie says, came out with an absolutely stellar report, profits through the roof, and the share price went down. Wow, says uh, Rosie. PE of five and a half, can you believe it? Question mark. Uh, Samfire, of course, uh, has a big copper mine, copper operation uh, in Western Australia. They're in the uh, copper concentrate uh with a gold and silver as a byproduct, got a project in Botswana uh, and also one in Montana in the United States. Sale, most recent report, sales up uh, 24%, earnings up 32%, and uh, paid a dividend of uh, 26, an interim dividend um, of 26 a share, which is almost double the previous year. What do you reckon of Samfire? Yeah, look, so Sandfire is one we hold for clients and, and one we, we've liked basically since the, the middle of last year, and we've done quite well off the back of that. It's a play on the electric vehicles thematic that's out there. Four times as much copper goes into electric vehicle than it does into a traditional um, combustion engine vehicle. Um, the whole thing with copper is for so long it was down in the doldrums, the price of copper that, that is. And therefore, no one was really investing in production or investing in in new mines. But now we've got to the point where on the horizon, there appears to be quite a historic supply squeeze in copper, and it's putting a lot of upward pressure on the copper price. Um, So from our perspective, we're happy to sort of play that thematic. I mean, typically, we're not that into mining companies, just given the cyclicality of it. But we just think it's worth having a bit of a look, given those thematics at play. Um, Looking at Sandfire specifically, there's a reason why it trades on very low multiples. Um, The reality is they had a very good mine, DeGrusa, which had very high grades, but the mine life was short. And over the years, that mine has been depleted. And as the mine's been depleted, it becomes harder and harder to produce the same quantity of copper at the same grades at the same price. Um, So people were very concerned that as that mine life runs out, what are they going to do next? Fortunately, they were conducting a, a bit of exploration and they have come across a very good resource in a, in a mine called Matheo, I think the name is. Uh, correct me if that's, if that's the pronunciation's 
a bit off. But basically, that new mine is in now in the development stage, and they're looking to get that mine in production at around FY23 estimates have it. So it was a very good result for copper and it was a very good result for Sandfire over the last 12 months. But with a lot of mining companies, unlike many other companies, um, you actually get a pretty good line of sight as to what the earnings are going to be because you're constantly getting quarterly production updates on the amount of copper that's being extracted yep. from the ground. So that's probably why, the, despite a very good result, the price didn't jump up that much. What was very good was the size of the dividend was much, much larger than many in the market were expecting. So they are spitting out an enormous amount of free cash flow at these prices and the outlook does look good. But ultimately, you still need the copper price to hold out and hold up for this company to do well. We think that will be the case, but you never know for certain. So it's always a higher risk proposition, these mining plays, but this is one that we do like, so we do have a buy on it. Okay, Andrew? Yeah, um, so Michael's Michael's beat me to the punch there. That's exactly, there's, the market can, as we know, can do really silly things from time to time. And this, for smart investors, that's a real opportunity. But it's also at the same time, we've got to be careful not to assume that the market's are always doing silly things. And so when you see a P of 5.5 for ostensibly a business that's just knocking it out of the park, it is either the market is just really missing a trick here or there's something else going on. And you need to answer that question, which Michael has just done uh, beautifully. So, you know, copper prices doing really well, being pulled out of a, of a really high quality mine. It's brilliant. I mean, these guys... No wonder they paid a strong dividend. They've got something like $570 million in cash. It's close to half the market cap there. So they're really well funded. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to fault them, but except for the characteristics that they have as this company, as a mining company, that they've always got to try and, you know, find find a new replacement for the stuff that's been taken out of the ground. So Matheo looks interesting. I guess you've got to judge, you've got to back management uh, after a point when they've got a very good history of establishing mines and and running them productively and profitably. That that's something you should take notice of. Um, I do know that the new copper mines in Botswana. I know absolutely zero about that, but I'm, I'm sure there's some sovereign risks that, yep. that might be involved there as well. So something else to keep an eye on. Um, so it's not a space I typically go, but I have to say, of all the of all the companies that come across our desk of this kind of ilk, it looks it looks pretty compelling. I just want to I just want a bit more visibility on what what's okay. going to happen in Botswana. All right, so not at the moment. Need oh. to pick up the pace on the uh, the last two guys. Um, Lisa wants a view on Invocare, um, Andrew, the the big funeral cemetery crematorium business. Yeah. Okay. So this is they own White uh, Lady um, funeral homes and a whole bunch of others. They also do things. Uh, there's a, ancillary products that they do there. They've been around for ages, and it's always sort of been at a high level sold on this idea of an aging population and sort of that morbid kind of uh, uh, implications for that in terms of funeral rates. Obviously, COVID has really knocked them around. Um, you know. It's, it's just hard to have a funeral in lockdown and with social distancing and, and capped numbers and the rest of it. So that's that's very much impacted them last year. Um, they did have a bit of a recovery in the recent half from the first set of lockdowns, which looks pretty good. But overall, I've got to say, I know we're short on time, so I'll just say this. It's pretty ordinary growth longer term. It's also been pretty lumpy. It's difficult to find their edge. It seems a bit of just an aggregation roll-up play in a fragmented industry. So it's just, it's just not that appealing. So it's a pass for me. Okay. Michael? Um, so from my standpoint, this company was an early mover um, in the space and that it consolidated a very fragmented industry. 
Um, but it's a, it's a very competitive industry. And in the last five years, despite all the huge investment that they've done into their business, um, improving the funeral homes, making them look nicer, that sort of thing, they've actually lost market share. Um, and it's very difficult because COVID actually saw a decrease in deaths due to the flu. We've seen that pick up maybe a little bit going forward. You expect it to pick up going forward. But what COVID has done is people are no longer spending as much necessarily on the funeral. They're not getting all the bells and whistles that go with it. Um, and that's hurting their, their margins. So I haven't actually read their most recent report. I probably should have before today. I was actually asked about this particular one on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I've just got a, a sell on it. It's just been tracking sideways for, for five years. And all the thematics that everyone thought were going to play out in its favour haven't really developed that way. Okay. All right. And uh, Edward Wands will be on our final stop, Michael Autosports, the uh, big new and used and, and particularly the luxury brand motor vehicle uh, group. They're also into, into finance and insurance products as most of the big car groups are. 42 dealerships, a couple of used vehicle dealerships. Uh, they're at the luxury end of the market too with Aston Martin, Bentley, Lamborghini, Maserati. Um, car market's been zooming and price has been zooming the last 12 months. Um, what do you think of Autosports? Yeah, look, it's, it's very interesting. As you touch upon, they've got all the premium brands. Um, new car sales in the first iteration of COVID last year actually fell 25%, whereas luxury vehicles actually saw new car sales increase 1%. And that just shows you that people who would have typically gone overseas and spent big money on a Europe trip or whatever it was, decided maybe they'll just buy a new car. Um, and that does leave me a little bit concerned that what happens once we cycle out of this COVID situation and we can travel again. So very good business, made the most of a, a tough situation, but I just worry about that pull forward demand and whether it will be sustainable going forward. So for mine, it's probably a sell. Okay, and um, uh, Andrew? Yeah, um, look, it, it's, it just seems that there's not been any growth in the last few years as well. So they've, they started out one dealership. They've been expanding nicely. But the, in terms of uh, how that's translated in recent times into any growth, it just hasn't, it has, hasn't continued. Um, it is a cyclical industry. It is a very tough one. But one of the things you really got to watch out for is the extremely low liquidity. I just had a check then. There's literally 14 trades that have been executed on the market today. So just something to bear in mind for investors. It could take a while to build or sell a position, and that's going to increase the volatility. So generally, you look at it and think, well, the PE is on 11, which doesn't seem that bad, particularly given that they had a, a, a good year. But that liquidity factor is going to weigh on that. The cyclical nature of it is also going to weigh on that. So for me, it's a pass as well. Okay. All right, gents, thank you for that. Appreciate your time. Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Good to have you aboard. Likewise, Andrew Page from Strawman. Have a good rest of the week, Thanks, fellas. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That's our show for today. If you've got any stocks you'd like us to cover on future editions of The Call, stick them in an email to us, thecall at osbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. Um, also, if you want to see all the stocks in The Call's portfolio, just go to osbiz.co slash portfolio. Mm -hmm.